Welcome in, Adam Munster-Tiger, the publisher of BuffStampede.com, joined by the man, William Whalen. William, a lot of people miss the free balling pod, and I'm sure the, the people that have been listening to you know that you have great takes on the CU men's basketball program. So I really appreciate you carving out some time. I know this is a busy time of the year with work. It's just great to hear your voice and to be able to catch up here. Yeah, man, I'm uh, really excited to be on. And I can just tell you that at least one part of the three-headed monster that was free ball and misses it. I miss it, certainly. Uh, Ziskin is on his own journey in a beautiful, beautiful way. And Murray is, you know, trading crypto and doing just fine. Uh, but, you know, we 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 had a great thing and it had to come to an end. But I'm, I'm super excited to talk uh, buffs today and extremely relieved that it doesn't have to do with anything involving anything happening at Folsom Field. Yeah, keep it focused on the upcoming 2022-2023 CU men's basketball season. This is going to serve as our preview show there. Will, how's life treating you these days? Life is good. We are, my wife and I live in New York City and we're in Brooklyn. And uh, I, it's, it's funny, I was, I got asked by somebody recently how I got into the wine business. Uh, and I told them that it really came down to a conversation at Village Coffee Shop with this guy, Adam, uh, when we learned that uh, I wasn't going to be able to continue on Buff Stampede uh, with, with him and how there were some opportunities in Arizona and Indiana with you know what was at the time the Yahoo Rivals Network and how as a mid-20-year-old, uh, I had very little interest in moving to uh, Indiana and or really elsewhere. So uh, Somehow I woke up one day and was selling wine. And so I'm still doing that. Uh, I am the executive vice president of a company called Winester, which is actually founded by three CU Boulder alums. Um, you know, when we when I joined the team in 2019, we talked a whole lot about football. Uh, they are pretty passionate fans. And then, you know, slowly over the last few years, those discussions have waned because they became too painful. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, I'm you know I'm with them. I'm also uh, the national sales director for a winery out in California, and uh, the, the work is the work is work. I, I get to share a lot of great wine with folks, and a lot of actually a lot of you know Buck Stampede people uh, over the years, whether on Twitter or, or elsewhere, have reached out, and you know I've kind of been able to help them uh, find something special for an anniversary or a gift or whatever it is, and so. I will. I will say that the uh, the CU Buck community is always very close to the heart, uh, you know, in that way. And um, yeah, so any everything that NC Buff was going through, you know, he he's in the he has spent a lot of his career uh, in the wine industry as well. Uh, and so it was. It's it's just kind of funny how when you find a community like CU, when you find a community like the the sports community and the fans surrounding CU. You never really leave. Uh, and so I will say this to you that uh, I don't know if you'll be the buff stampede uh, guy when you're 85 years old. Uh, you know, maybe, hopefully, we'll, we'd all be certainly lucky. But I know that uh, watching from afar, just the continued recognition of your work uh, by the fan base has always been incredible to see. And uh, nobody, you know, I'm not going to say maybe not nobody, but very, very, very few people deserve to see this athletic department get it together uh, and get on track more than you do. And the work you do 
Uh, I'm still a subscriber of Buff Stampede. The work you do has always been awesome. So you have done a fantastic job keeping me in the loop over the years with just what the hell is going on in Boulder. Well, I appreciate that. And just to your point about how tight-knit Buff Nation is, it's kind of almost like we've gone through a tragedy together almost, right? There's kind of that, that bond of having to suffer through a lot of really bad football over the years that's almost strengthened that bond a little bit, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I, I won't exactly say that uh, I found my wife because of the tragedy that is Colorado football or anything like that. Uh, but certainly, you know, I, I wouldn't be married to Nina if it weren't for, you know, being a part of the CU fan base and being involved in everything around to you, um, you know, like I have. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll say one other thing. You've got a heck of a coaching tree, you know, between – Myself, between Ryan Konigsberg, obviously everything that he's doing uh, at DNVR, you know, your your assistants have really gone on to lead other programs well. Actually, a whole lot better than most of uh, So, for the record, I just want to say that uh, the damn Munson Tigers coaching tree is pretty healthy and pretty strong out there. You should feel good about that. I remember when you brought Ryan Konigsberg around. He's standing outside a football practice, and I didn't know who he was, honestly. You had brought him out there, and I'm standing there. Hi, how's it going? Who, who are you, basically? And he just started talking CU football with him. And I was like, who is this kid? He knows everything about CU football, which is pretty rare. You know, you get a lot of the journalism students that have a lot of hunger for writing and, and getting a, into a career, but they don't have that knowledge of the history of CU football the way that, that Ryan does. And so... That, that stood out from day one, and it was great working with you guys. I wish we could have done that even longer, but uh, obviously he's gone on to do great things, and it sounds like you've you've found a good niche. Do you miss covering hmm. the team, or, or do you enjoy, especially with the basketball side, do you enjoy when the game is done, you can kind of move on to other things? I'll say this. I really enjoyed the camaraderie of press row at basketball games. Um you know, it's just a little different. You're, I think the the seats at Folsom for for the press are fantastic. You know, there are a lot of places where your view of the field isn't great, or you're really really far. Uh, I always liked Folsom's, uh, and you know, obviously being in a football stadium, it's just different. Being in you know the former Coors Event Center, that being in that little corner, you know, right by the tunnel where the team comes out, uh, you really just there was something special about that. And, you know, I, I think back to when Ryan Thorburn was still on the beat, you know, he was kind of the, the OG hoops reporter. And then, you know, myself kind of came in or I came in and um, there started to be this little group where we recognized that something was really happening. And so after, you know, for those who don't know the process, you know, the game ends, you walk into the press room uh, that's just through the tunnel and the players come out and then, you know, had would come out uh, and then we would all go back to our seats and you know be writing our game story or uploading you know you and i would go on the court and do a little uh video recap or whatever it was and you know while you're doing that you're kind of talking to everybody oh what happened on this player can somebody you know someone like brian would be taking notes of every little thing that happened kind of throughout the game not just big plays uh so you're asking for you know who scored what uh and then you know the players are all kind of mingling with their family on the court and then you know there there were nights where we'd get out of there real late and 
no, no, there, there was a camaraderie about it that I do miss. Uh, and working with Tad was special, you know, especially getting out on the road and covering the recruiting events. Uh, you, you just get assigned to the coaches that you don't get when they're in the fortress that is their own building, you know, uh, and sitting next to a coach and watching somebody and just kind of asking like, okay, like, what are you, you've offered this guy, what, what about his game has really made him so high on your board? And you're kind of just learning what, what maybe any coach look for, but especially with CU, they're different. I mean, you know, this, like that, they evaluate differently than a lot of other people. They think about, mm-hmm. you know, they're incredibly stingy with offers. That is, you know, it's one reason why a bad Marco didn't really work out because he would just offer guys without telling anyone. Uh, Boyle is really, really stingy with offers. And I remember they were talking about a, a guy in Colorado. I can't remember his name. Uh, and they were kind of lightly recruiting him. And I asked him, like, you know, do you not think he's going to be good? Like, oh, no, he's going to be really good. We just don't know if he's going to be really good when we need him to be really good. And, you know, I think about guys like Dalen Coons kind of fitting that idea as well. And it's just they think about those things in a way that I didn't hear from other coaches, you know, Oregon assistants, Washington assistants, Memphis assistants. You just didn't hear that. Uh, and so it was really incredible to get to know them and uh, work alongside them. And But. As you mentioned, there is something really incredible about being able to to turn on the game, to enjoy it, and then walk away, you know, uh, and truly enjoy it as well. Because I didn't get to go to games in the fan when I was in college. That's something I will never get back. I never have to sit in the student section, you know, consistently as a student uh, and just cheer for my school. I was working. Uh, And so... You know, it allowed it allowed a different exposure to the program, a different connection to the program that I uh, I value and uh, I miss, but I I definitely value being able to just be a fan now. Can we say that you discovered George King? Is that a, a oh yeah, statement? oh yeah, oh yeah? That is a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I, I've told the story, but I'm I'm watching this guy in Denver. He's a uh, a tournament that allows seniors to play in it in the early evaluation windows. And I'm, uh, we can just, I'm, I'm texting with one of the coaches, like, dude, there's this guy uh, who's real good. And you guys need to see him. Cause I'm sitting next to Gonzaga in Texas right now. Uh, and they're going to go after him. And, you know, the Colorado, the Buffs were going to be there the next day to watch Josh Perkins anyways, who, which is who Texas and Gonzaga was really at the tournament for. Uh, and Tad shows up the next day, and we're and he's just like, all right, where'd you get it? And I was like, it's like him with the really weird hair, because King had the like step. He had like a high top fade, but with different layers to it. I don't know if you remember that when he was yeah, recruiting. yeah, yeah. And Wasn't that his profile picture on one of the the sites, the recruiting sites? Absolutely, absolutely. It's fantastic, fantastic hair. Uh, and yeah, I mean, so um, they offered him the next day, uh, and. I got alerted via a source that he committed the night of my college graduation party at the Dark Horse. And so I called him to do to let him know that I wanted to do an interview the next morning. My <laughs> dad was pouring Jameson in the upstairs bar at Dark Horse. Uh, and he thought I was one of the few coaches. He kept calling me coach. I was like, no, dude, I'm from buckstampede.com. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's awesome. Well, we could share stories forever. We should probably start our preview on uh, this year's squad. But first, I guess we got to mention quickly for those that are just catching up because football has been going on and trying to figure out what's the roster makeup. Obviously, everybody knows that Evan Batty has moved on and he's playing professionally overseas. Keyshawn Bartholomew is out of the program now. He's at Oregon. Jabari Walker now in the NBA. I'm so glad he got drafted. As that thing was getting close to the end, it was like, Gosh, some of these guys that are getting picked, am I really this big of a homer? I really felt like Jabari Walker's game would suit him better at that level. So it was great seeing him, you know, shine at Summer League. And I saw he got a bucket in garbage time for the Blazers uh, last night uh, in their win over Denver. So that was cool to see. It was a nice move, too. It was a real nice move. It was. All the way up the court, yeah. And uh, Eli Parquet. uh, It was kind of a a mutual party between he and CU. He's now at UNLV. And I guess you'd include Will Laughlin here just because he was placed on scholarship last season. So that was a group that went 21 and 12 last year, 12 and eight in conference play with a fourth place finish in the PAC 12 exited in the semifinals of the PAC 12 tournament with a loss to Arizona, and then exited in the first round of the NIT with a loss to St. Bonaventure, which made it to the semifinals of the NIT. So those guys are out of the program. You bring in Ethan Wright and Jalen Gabadon from the Ivy League as graduate transfers. You bring in Javon Hadley from the JUCO ranks. A real nice find late in the process by Mike Rohn. They thought they had Bobby Clintman in. There was an admissions issue. Uh, but Hadley's going to be a nice player for the Buffs. He's in the program. You also bring in a couple high school players, Joe Hurlbert and RJ Smith. And really, William, I think you could probably include. Quincy Allen and Javon Ruffin in here as as well with the newcomers because those guys redshirted last year due to injuries. What are your overall thoughts in terms of this influx of talent compared to the guys that are leaving the program? Yeah, I would say that as far as newcomers strictly versus guys who leave, uh, you probably lost more than you gained. It's not that I think Keyshawn Bartholomew will never be replaced. You know, it's certainly not like that. But as far as going into this year, the number one thing that they lose is is leadership, certainly with Evan. There was some obvious friction at times, particularly early, uh, between Evan and some others and young guys. You know, Evan's really, it's kind of hard to be a team's emotional leader and and, uh, really team leader and captain when you're like the third best player. You know, or or even the second best player. It's just diff- it's just different, uh, and I think that there were times last year where there was some bumping of heads between you know someone like Jabari who's the leading scorer, he's clearly the best player on the team, uh, and he kind of needs to do things his way in his mind. And Evan has a different idea, but they really did figure it out. Uh, and Evan's leadership, uh, I think, is probably a big part of that. His humility is a big part of that. Uh, and him also rounding into form really helped that. So, you, so you definitely lose leadership, but more than anything, I think uh, you you lose three guys, or really two guys, between Jabari and Evan, who really knew their role. And that's something that we'll talk about later when we evaluate the individual players. Um, but they knew their kind of roles. They knew where they stood in the locker room. They knew what they're supposed to do on offense, and they were prepared to do it. Um, so you have to question exactly where everybody else fits in that this year. Um, the big thing that, to me, uh, I see that he lost was just uh, easy bucket. 
Colorado was number one in the league last year in the Pac-12 free throw percentage and number two in free throw attempts per game. They lose 341 of their 640 free throw attempts. Now, Jabari accounted for like 170 of those alone. So you obviously, you know, he, he feasted at the line. So you lose that, and that's just easy offense. That, that thing's when your offense gets bogged down, who can kind of just make something happen, go into somebody, draw contact, uh, and we have we don't yet know whether there's somebody on this team uh, who can do that consistently. What I will say about the newcomers, though, is I, I'll ask you, isn't it kind of funny that Tad rails against the transfer portal? But pretty consistently, they get transfers like every year. Uh, now, sometimes it's graduate transfers. Sometimes it, it's something else. But like a lot of transfers have come into this program. What is it? What is interesting, though, is it's always role players. Like you know, none of the guys that he has brought in were absolute bucket getters. Other than the, you know, what was it, Western Carolina kid. Uh, Mason Faulkner, who came in and, and bolted really quickly. Uh, no one in that he's brought in has just been a bucket getter. It's always pieces to fit into a puzzle. And so, you know, with Gavin and Wright in particular, you just have two veterans uh, who have been a part of systems, who just kind of know how to fit into a system uh, very well. And I think they also bring a level of versatility and just kind of, again, know-how. Like, they know the grind of a season, right? Uh, someone like Quincy Allen has no idea what the grind of a season is like. Javon Ruffin has no idea. They've sat on the bench. They've, you know, maybe practiced a little bit here and there, but, you know, for the most part been injured. They have really no idea of the physical toll that a whole season takes. Um, I think if you were being honest, you can probably say that there's a level of pop, right? A level of, like, real excitement in this group that may be lacking. Um I think we thought that could be Quincy Allen, but even if all you're doing is reading Tad's comments in the media, you can kind of tell that there's a lack of reliability there, a lack of consistency there, so that we really shouldn't be thinking of him as someone who's really pop. Yeah, he might be a freak athletically, uh, but yeah, so I would say that as far as like in and out, you lose a lot more production than you gain, but the pieces that come in specifically between Wright and Gavin are, are really interesting. And I think that uh, they probably offer a level of reliability and consistency that Tad really wanted around this group of young guys. Yeah, I think when Tad talks about not wanting to bring transfers in, that would be his preference every year. I don't think he'd ever bring in a transfer if guys would stick around. But yeah, when you looked at this basketball team, you you had to find experience somewhere. And because of the transfer restrictions at CU, it's really hard to find guys that are second, third year in college that you can bring in. So they were kind of put into a tough spot as far as that goes. We're going to go through all these individual players. We're going to do a a player draft and then kind of break down our, our thoughts on each of these guys. But real quick, I would like to to pump the brakes a little bit on the Quincy Allen hype and he, I think, was the first guy that I featured this preseason and seeing the excitement from people was like, okay, we got to slow down a little bit. Like Tad Boyle said, and you've even heard some of his teammates say, there's some things that he does that, I mean, Carlin Brown had some bounce to him and, and Alec Burks was an incredible athlete, but there haven't been a lot of guys that come through the CU program 
that can do some of the stuff he does, especially when they get out in transition. But we'll see where he goes in this draft. But you know, he's a little bit far down my my board because I don't think he's going to finish in the top six of this team, maybe even top seven of this team in scoring this year. I, I think it's really going to be a work in progress for him. But th- those Ivy League kids are exactly w- what you'd expect them to be. Ethan Wright was a knockdown shooter in every practice I've been to this preseason, except for the open scrimmage they had. And, and he was one of five that day and had an air ball in there. It just didn't look right. So people are kind of tempering their expectations there, but I think he's going to be a really good addition. I think Jalen Gabadon is going to be the glue that holds that second unit together. I, I, I think you want to have him coming off the bench because he really does a lot of things. He's not near the shooter that Ethan Wright is, but you like what those guys brought uh, to, to the mix. Joe Hurlburt's probably going to play this year only because they don't have a lot of scholarship picks because th- that's kind of how far behind he is. Not I shouldn't say far behind he is because he's just a true freshman, but he's got a lot of learning to do. And then I don't even think we're going to have R.J. Smith eligible for the draft. I'd imagine he'll probably redshirt this year. Is it safe to call this a, a retooling year? Yeah, I uh, I would agree with that. I I think that the idea I'm kind of pushing back against the the term simply because I think there are a lot of pieces here who aren't going to be here in another year. Uh, certainly with some of the, the graduates, but also you know, look if you're a top 100 guy. Uh, and you come all the way out to Colorado from D.C., and you're not playing, you know, and, and that's a real possibility, right, that uh, Quincy Allen is, like, buried uh, in the depth chart and is kind of Maddox Daniels E without the minutes uh, and without the shot. Uh, who knows if you're going to stick it out, right? Like, that's just how it how the world works now. So I, I think what this is really about is this is a, this is a growing up year. Uh, this is a year where two guys in particular with KJ Simpson and Julian Hammond need to grow up and show that they are the point guards in this program, that they have those jobs on lock for the next, you know, three years. Uh, and someone like Nick Clifford m- matures into the full version of himself. Um, so that's why, you know, I, I think, Certainly, we're. I would imagine, you know, we'll talk about it. I, I imagine we both have similar expectations for the actual results of this year. But, you know, it's it's funny. You hear Tad talk about he expects some struggles early on. And then he expects his team to really click late in the year. Well, that's exactly what happened last year. That I mean, you, you, you look at it, and the Buffs were at six, you know, maybe not exactly halfway through, but the bus were at 13 and five and they really hadn't beaten anybody uh, of consequence in the non-conference. Uh, they had pulled the upset over USC. Uh, they had beaten Oregon, but other than that, it was just kind of slow and steady. And they closed at, you know, six and one, but they looked damn good in the process of that six and one. I mean, you know, this was a team that if they played the whole season to their February and March capabilities, that's a tournament team, and that's a, a damn good team. Uh, so I don't know what this year's version of it will really look like, um, but I would expect, I would really expect them to have uh, 
have a rough go of it in the early conference. The non-conference, maybe not as much just because it's pretty weak, but like early conference could be a little dicey. Uh, and we'll see what they do to turn things around late as these guys grow in uh, and really settle in their role. That is the concern. Exactly what you said is that it could be a repeat of last year where there's just too many losses early in the schedule for them to to be an NCAA tournament team. But regardless, this is going to be the team that makes Tad Boyle the winningest coach in CU men's basketball history. It's not a question of if, but when the season that's going to happen. He's just seven wins behind Sox Walseth. I think it's realistic to expect this group to finish in the top half of the Pac-12, but probably not getting a bye in the first round of the Pac-12 tournament. We'll get into our, our record predictions at the end. I would guess probably fifth, sixth, seventh is probably where I'd set my expectations. Probably another NIT appearance. Is that kind of what you think? Yeah, I would agree. I think that's largely where I see this group. The, the Pac-12 itself is a little tough to judge this year. I think that there's, you know, you, you've got a lot of unknowns to what will Tommy do in uh, Tucson in his second year? Uh, will UCLA, you know, UCLA feels like they've been bringing back the same four or five guys uh, for four or five years. Uh, will they kind of coalesce and be who they can be? USC just always fa- finishes in the top four. Uh, that's kind of their place now uh, under Enfield. And then you've got, you know, the the likes of Washington had a surprise year last year. Washington State. Uh, they have talent coming back, maybe not as much talent as last year. Uh, Arizona State brought in some transfers that look really good. Uh, Utah is kind of building to something, who knows what, but in theory they are building to something. Stanford, you know, we all know it. Stanford could finish 10th. Uh, they could finish third. You know, you, you really don't know. So I think when I look at the Pac-12, I see the number – they need to get five teams in the tournament. You know, you, you need USC, UCLA. Oregon, Arizona as your four. And then somebody's got to break in from outside of that. And, you know, without looking through everybody's non-conference schedule, I won't say, you know, who it is or who it isn't. Uh, but I, I don't um, I don't see CU necessarily as the top candidate to break into that. Uh, I, so I, I, I see them, you know, middle of the pack, uh, which would be, I think, a really good thing this group honestly and and look kj simpson is a sophomore mckinley wright went to the nit first first two years in college and that's kind of what this program is right now it's you know you you grow a group together and event you know you kind of go through all the growing pains and learning and physical maturation and chemistry building over the course of two years and then that third year you're ready to run Right, that third year, you're ready to take things by storm a little bit. I would imagine that's a lot how this group will look. And you know, the second McKinley year, the, they lost some bad games. So I, I would just caution folks like this team is going to be a work in progress for the first two months of the season. Uh, we, we shouldn't, and I'm just as guilty of this as anybody, we shouldn't jump to too, too many conclusions uh, early on. The team depth should be really good. And I've been really impressed with their recruiting in the sense that they haven't had just any flat out busts in the last probably what three years. 
it's been a little while since they recruited a guy on a campus and he was clearly not a guy that was going to contribute to this program. There are guys that are works in progress. Uh, Joe Hurlbert's going to take some time, even Lawson Lovering. Uh, RJ Smith's probably going to redshirt, but you go to their practice and, and even a Javon Ruffin that's going to have a hard time getting a lot of minutes in the backcourt is a guy that really belongs at this level and would have been much higher, you know, in terms of the overall pecking order early, I, I feel like, in Tad Boyle's tenure at, at CU. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking through their classes right now. Uh, you know, back in 2018, it, their class was Shane Gatling, Eli Parquet, Dalen Koontz, and Jakob Dombeck. Now, Dombeck was clearly a reach. Like, he couldn't, he yeah. couldn't play here. But, you know, that, was, that became pretty clear really quickly. You know, Dalen is an interesting one where you're like, there, was, there were clearly tools there. Uh, nobody's debating that. And his freshman year, he had flashes that were really promising. He just really regressed. And he clearly lost confidence. He clearly wasn't comfortable with his role. And, you know, this wasn't a system that really suited him. He needed the ball in his hands to really grow and work through his stuff in that way. And he got that in our Colorado. Since then, I mean, you're right. Like, everybody has had a role to play. Uh, and really, everybody that has come in has found a way to contribute to winning. And I think that really says something to they. We always made the jokes early on that if you're six, seven, lefty and uh, kind of long and athletic, then Tad's going to love you. That's not the MO anymore. He's gone, he's really gone away from the positionless. I'm going to take this raw thing and just find a way to do it. If a guy has enough raw ability, then he'll, you know, he'll take them, you know, look at Quincy Allen. But I, I mean, look at the 2021 class. Lawson Lovering, pure center. KJ Simpson, guard. Javon Ruffin, combo guard. Julian Hammond, guard. Quincy Allen is your kind of wing stretch, figure it out because there, there's a, a freak athletically that you kind of can't turn away. And then R.J. Smith, kind of classic two-guard profile. Joe Hurlburt, big man. Like, these aren't wing guys. And he, then he's finding Juco or transfers to fit in on the wing and kind of be those glue guys that uh, you kind of described uh, Gabadon as. So the recruiting strategy has taken a noticeable turn, really since the, like, 2000 and probably – 16 class, 2017 on. And basketball players are generally going to be more prima donna-ish than some other sports. So you're going to have to deal with a little bit of that. Like KJ Simpson, he's got a lot of confidence. He's going to be a little bit cocky at times. But the other thing they've done a good job of is I felt like since XJ, they haven't had those bad body language guys in the program as well. And it makes me wonder, did XJ – change that approach from Tad Boyle a little bit because I mean XJ let's be honest he drove Tad crazy at times um, and then you kind of had Wesley Gordon kind of an aloof personality they, they haven't had that type of player really in the program recently as well which has made for really close locker rooms year after year that's something that you know, you'll talk to a recruit after his official visit and you'll interview them and then you'll say I'm not recording this. I'm just curious. What was it like in the locker room out there? And generally, I mean, those guys can't rave enough about how close Tad Boyle teams have been here the last few years. And I'm not trying to like just pick on XJ, but 
I think that drove everybody nuts during his time in Boulder. Oh, and not absolutely. to say not to say he's a bad guy, but just that body language that he had was something that you don't really want kind of seeping throughout your team. No, and you know, a guy that comes to mind is Bryce Peters. Do you remember him? Yes. Uh, Bryce was a eccentric personality and he had some mental health stuff. So like I don't I don't want to make an indictment on him personally, but that was known in high school. And they took it. They 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 saw and I think everybody saw flashes of like, man, if this guy kind of hones stuff, there's real flash here. There's real pop here. Uh but yeah, the due to a lot of things that wasn't ever gonna come together for him. And I look at it like Dad used to only say that he looked, can you pass dribble shoot? He looks for a lot more about personality now. And, and I think you're right that you know someone like Wes uh, and XJ in their own ways really taught Tad a lesson uh, about how, and, and Ski, you know, it's important to remember Ski. Like yeah. when I don't care how much talent you have in a locker room, you can lose it really, really quickly if your dynamics are really bad. And if you've got personalities in there um, that don't work together and or, or work together in really destructive ways, you know, like some of the relationships that were formed in that era. So, you know, everybody was kind of talking about the, uh, what was that, the 2019-2020 team that really fell apart down the stretch. And, you know, whether that was something with Tyler Bay or whether it was Deshaun Schwartz or whether it was McKinley Wright or whatever, one thing or another. And. I, I would just say, like, you're supposed to have confidence in team sports. You know, not everybody is always going to get along, but it's about whether over the stretch run, over, over the course of a career, you have a culture that can bring people back to center. Uh, and it does, you know, now that we're saying all this stuff, this locker room is going to be a mess, right? Like, of course, now we're praising everything. Well, do, Tad, Boyle just, Tad Boyle just said the other day at a practice that, and I don't want to say it word for word because, uh, you know, we're not supposed to report on specifics like that. But basically, th- this team likes it, likes each other too much was the issue right. right now. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of what I mean. Like, the best teams that I was on were ones where when the ball was dropped, you wanted to rip that guy's heart out. Like, my my one of my best friends in this world, when we took the court together, we wanted to kill each other. But, you know, if if somebody knocked him down, I'm the first one to pick him up. Somebody knocked me down, he's the first one to pick me up because there's that love there, that respect there, that competitiveness can foster, can build upon. You know, I I hate to even bring this up because it hasn't been fun to live through the last couple weeks, but you look at the Draymond Green at, situation in Golden State and – that's where the line crosses. You can talk smack back and forth. You can do this and that. And as long as you keep it within the realm of competition, then that can foster something really special in the locker room. And I think Tad has historically done an incredible job of fostering competition in this program. So this year, they open against UC Riverside at home on November 7th. They're going to play their next five after that away from Boulder. They're going to play at Grambling State. They're going to play against Tennessee and Nashville. And then three games in the Myrtle Beach Invitational in South Carolina, 
starting off with a first round matchup against UMass. They come back and, and have a stretch where they play a lot of home games. Yale, CSU, North Alabama, Northern Colorado, Southern Utah are all coming to the CU Event Center. How does this non-conference schedule compare with some of the previous non-conference slates that they've had during the Boyle era, just in terms of difficulty overall? Yeah, I mean, we can say it. it's it's uh, it's pretty soft overall. Um, you know, Grant, Grant between particularly between Grambling State um, and North Alabama and Southern Utah, and even this Northern Colorado team is not supposed to be as good as last year in our Colorado team. Um, what I will say, though, is the construction of it is really interesting. You know, UC Riverside is supposed to be a top, you know, is one of the top two or three teams uh, in the Big West. So you you get a team immediately that, you know, at, at the very least, like, has some semblance of identity. You know, they're, they're at least a top half of the their conference team. Uh, then you look at someone like uh, Colorado State. You know that they certainly probably they might even have the best point guard that few faces. You know in the non-conference um, and Isaiah Stevens, but you know there's something to me that's kind of missing in the middle of this non-conference uh, that can be filled in at Myrtle Beach. You know if he was able to get past Massachusetts, uh, and if they were to get say Texas A&M. You know, even Murray State. Murray State's a quality program, quality team. But if you can get Texas A&M in the second round, say you beat them, right? Say that you can get Loyola Chicago in the title game. Th- then you're then you're kind of cooking, right? Uh, that then you've you know Loyola is going to be a, that would probably end up as a quad one game, uh, as would Texas A&M. Uh, and Massachusetts probably not, but like that would be really great to get two quad one games in at Myrtle Beach. Uh, I think that would really do wonders for the uh, for the resume. I think that first month of just looking at dates here, the first month of the season, having those what will end up being five games in a row away from home, I think is really important. Get the team get their sea legs on the road a little bit. Uh, get out of that comfort zone if you're playing at home. And we know that at times, teams like this in Boyle's tenure, uh, they'll go out and lose the you know, in the first round uh, of the Myrtle Beach. And then they'll play two terrible teams and either barely beat both of them or, you know, perform not that well. Like, we, we've seen that uh, with teams that look like this. But then you come home. Yale at home. Arizona State at home. At Washington. Colorado State. Northern. North Alabama, Northern Colorado, Southern Utah, all at home. You kind of just get this chance to regroup, get your mojo back a little bit. So I think the the setup of the schedule is actually pretty beneficial because if if CU starts out hotter than maybe we think they will, I I don't think either of us are going to pick them to beat Tennessee uh, in Nashville. But say they go two and one heading into Myrtle Beach, they go two and one in Myrtle beach. You know, you've got a chance there to run off some early wins uh, in conference. If you've got some confidence going. So, you know, I think ultimately, you know, again, we'll talk about prediction, but the non-conference sets up in a way that we should have some early success. 
it just depends on, you know, it, when we're listening to Boyle, like really how, how long is it going to take with this group? I don't know. Let's jump into the CU player draft. Like I mentioned, we'll probably not have RJ Smith in the player pool here, which will leave 12 scholarship guys. We can go back and forth, draft a six-player team. We'll throw it out to fans, see which one they think would win a scrimmage, which is maybe not the best strategy because then you're playing for fan votes here. But this is going to give us an opportunity to talk about each guy and our expectations for this upcoming season. Will, I'm going to let you draft first here for your team. Ooh, I was wondering which way you would let me go. And and I think uh, we're not going this, or anything here, so I'm not trying right, to pull, pull right, two right. guys after this. So. <laughs> I'm going to lead off with uh, KJ Simpson at the most important position on the floor. KJ, we all saw last year the ability. We all saw the potential of this guy to turn into, you know, an all-conference type point guard for Colorado. The question is now, and the question will be this year, whether he's ready to find a level of consistency this year that he was never really able to establish last year. Um, He'll be able to, he'll have the luxury of playing through more mistakes this year, largely because CU doesn't have three point guard options that they truly are running with like they did last year. It's really him and Julian. so I think my expectation for KJ is high. Uh, I mean, he's listed consistently as one of the breakout candidates in the country. Um, I wonder with him whether he's got a little X-J in him with he's a gamer. He shows up on game day and just finds a way to do it. Uh, the key for me, for him, if, if I have to pick one thing I'm worried about, one thing I'm really looking forward to uh, will be I, I'm worried about defensively if he can find a way uh he's got some energizer bunny in him and he can cause disruption but he gave up a lot of open as a freshman like freshmen do when you're playing against upper coffin guard uh the thing that i'm excited about is can he if he can turn himself into a 34 percent three-point shooter then we're cooking with grease if he's a 29 percenter look we all love mckinley wright but like at a at a certain point, C is going to have to have a point guard that can shoot the ball from three consistently. For the love of God, uh, so I would say that 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 would be a thing that uh, I would be looking forward to. And I think you know between having Tristan De Silva in the post and uh, having some wing options that require defenders to come through, he uh, might get some good looks this year. KJ, his game is going to be volatile because of how flashy he wants to play to some level, but it, it really is about. At the end of each game, are there more pluses than a lot more pluses than minuses? Especially you're picking them number one here, but I mean there there are going to be those games you want to scream and throw your remote at the TV because he's being frivolous, right? I mean th- that's probably not going to evolve out of his game until maybe he matures a little bit. Oh yeah, without a doubt. And you know I'm not saying he's Steph Curry, but there are a lot of people who watch the NBA and freak out when they watch Steph Curry about the turnovers. Oh my God, he had seven turnovers. Well, he also had 45 points, uh, eight assists, and his gravity created open jumpers on like 70% of the possessions he was in. So as you're saying, it's it's about cumulative effect. And you don't want to take away that spark, that flash Mm -hmm. from KJ, because it's what makes him special. 
you know, it's part of what made Brendan Lewis so frustrating to watch as a freshman. You're like, I can live with it if you're making mistakes throwing picks because you're going for it because you are you're trying to capture the star. But if you're if you're making mistakes and not, or even if you're not making mistakes, but you're scared to make plays, I have no use for you. So I think that's how, how I kind of feel about KJ. Well, I'm going to take Tristan De Silva with my first pick. It's going to be interesting to see how much more assertive he is this year because one of his strengths is that he doesn't force things. One of his weaknesses is that at times that he doesn't take that next initiative to be more of the player that he can be. I mean, there are flashes in practice when he will get agitated and he will take over for a stretch. And there are other times where he just disappears for a while because he's letting the game kind of come to him. And it was interesting in the open scrimmage they had before the Cal football game, they were doubling De Silva every time he got the ball. And I think that's part of their strategy. They're working on defensively because they're smaller in the post is that it was probably more about that on the defensive end than it was about feeling like they needed to double team De Silva, but he was so quiet in that scrimmage. It, it was smart. They're double teaming them, find your teammates, but that is the part of his game that I want to see evolve a little bit. I would imagine, you know, Tad's going to be on him quite a bit about that is you are the guy that was picked second team all Pac-12 this year. You're the guy that's expected to lead th- this team and whether it's, you know, scoring, rebounding, he's probably going to be right there with, with KJ in terms of scoring, but how aggressive is he going to be in those tight moments? Cause they don't have a, a you know, a guy that is definitively the guy to go to in the clutch. KJ probably wants to be that guy. Uh, but depending on how that game is going for him, you know, Tristan's going to have to have to step up in those moments, maybe more than he's probably comfortable to do naturally. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of that, well, Tad will love that I'm saying this, but a great way to establish assertiveness is on the boards. It's a place where you can kind of get into a game. We saw this so many times with Jabari Walker where he's not shooting the ball well, but you look up and he's got eight rebounds and there's two minutes left in the first half. It's it's a place where you can get into a game energetically, physically, if you're not really there yet. And last year, uh, he ranked last of all the team's front court players in total rebound percentage. That can't happen. Obviously, it can't happen this year. They really need yeah. him to step up. But it, to me, that has always been the frustration with him is that the the passive attitude, if it shows up in some in, in an effort category, like rebounding can be at the college level, then that is concerning to me. Now, last year, again, when you have someone like Evan Batty, when you have someone like Jabari Walker, one of the best rebounders in the country, like there's only so many that are available to you, right? I I, I get that. Um, but I, if I'm talking about a thing that I'm looking for him to really improve on this year, it's rebounding. And I think Tad would probably agree that he he needs to up his rebounding. Uh, if I if I'm worried about something, you know, it's a little bit of what you talked about. And when you're passive, you also are keen to turnovers. Uh, Tristan had some rough passing games last year when he was putting decisions with the ball in his hands where he had to make decisions. Like if you're in a position where you're on the move, trying to decide where the ball goes, uh, and you don't have a natural feel as a pather, you allow teams to get out in transition. And those things can also spiral as we see in this program with turnovers. So 
can he work on taking care of the ball as a primary offensive option? Can he make the decisions with the ball when his shot is not there? Because if you're passive and turning the ball over, that's a really bad recipe. He's like the right. the guy in dodgeball that just needed to get angry at the end. Oh yeah, Tad's got to find. He's gonna have to probably push some buttons with De Silva to get that out of him because there was a practice where Boyle got on him, and then a couple minutes later, on a fast break dunk, he just posterized Lawson Lovery. So it's it's in there deep down, but I'm sure it's gonna be, you know, partly Boyle's strategy at times to to bring that out of him this year. Yeah, you gotta you gotta know that you, you gotta want to be the man, right? You gotta want to be that. His older brother at Stanford was an angry player. He was physical. Now he was a little bit more physically mature, even at you know coming into his junior year than Tristan is now. But man, like it, I look at that as kind of a blueprint for him. Of it's just an attitude, it's an attitude of you're going to bring physicality and. That's why I say that the the boards are a great way to kind of establish that in any given game. Um, It's back to you. Yeah, I I struggled with this one. Uh, I've got my rankings here, and I I had KJ one, Tristan two. Uh, The three spot, I went back and forth between two guys multiple times. Uh, But I'm going to go with Neek Clifford here. And, I mean, the, the physical attributes speak for themselves, right? Uh, He's a really really high-level athlete that at times last year showed flashes of being an absolute defensive stopper, uh, a threat to block shots at the rim, an aggressive rebounder. And he also, you know, I mean, I was really surprised when I saw his three-point percentage at the end of the year. I didn't didn't feel like he had shot the ball particularly well, Uh, and he ends the season as a 40% three-point shooter. At the same time, you had games where Neek was seemingly checked out. He wasn't really involved. Uh, he wasn't finishing at the rim. He was passing up, catch and shoot, wide open three-pointers in favor of driving into no man's land and turning the ball over. Uh, it was a, it was very much a campaign of somebody who was still trying to figure out what they did well at this level. Yet. I mean, how can you uh, how can you discount the, the natural tools that are there? And look, if the, if that shooting is real, and it doesn't have to be forty percent, if he's a thirty seven percent plus shooter, and he hones in on the defensive end and becomes consistent in that department, I don't need much else. I don't need him to do a ton of stuff off the dribble. You know, he can lead the break, and he's great at uh, grabbing a rebound and going. And and I know Ted loves that. But it all I really need out of Neek is knock down open shots, attack the boards, and defend. And if he can do those three things, then he's the third most valuable player on the team. That's a good pick. I had him third as well. I've seen his confidence grow a lot since he got on campus. It makes sense. He was playing 3A ball in high school. This was a big jump for him. And great recruiting story. This is a kid that was playing with the scrubs at their, their camp. The summer before his junior year, hits his growth spurt and then becomes this. He wasn't a blue chip recruit, but he had quite a few high major offers by the end of it. And he comes in and 
he'll admit that it was shocking to be playing in front of so many fans at first. So he, he had more of a, a curve in terms of getting comfortable in that setting than a lot of these guys that, that come into a program like CU. And he looks really comfortable in his own skin now, you know, much more so than he did the previous two years. Hopefully that translates to him being this team's third best player. I, I think for you talk about this big rebounding deficit that you face off last year's team with Evan and Jabari moving on. He's a guy that is really going to need to step up in that category. And he's got that, that ability to do that. This is a tough fit pick for me here, but I should probably take Julian Hammond to get oh! my point guard on the board. You were going to try oh! to try to shut me out of uh, point guards here. Weren't oh, hundred percent. My, my entire goal here was <laughs> to leave you with no point guard. He's the most underrated player on this team because he doesn't have the flash of KJ Simpson. He is that steady Eddie type. There's a reason that Tad Boyle went to him to start at point guard down the stretch last year. And and that's pretty impressive for a true freshman to get called upon like that. KJ is going to get, you know, the media attention and be everybody's darling, but Julian's quietly going to be there is going to be a really big part of this team. His, Shooting has improved quite a bit. It's not that he was a bad shooter last year, but it didn't really pop off as much as it is right now. So not flashy at all, but uh, he's the guy that probably isn't going to get me fan votes in this, but it was a guy that I felt was deserving to be picked for. You know, it's funny you mentioned about shooting. He shot 41.5% last year on 41 attempts in 29 games. Uh, and it was, his, what it was two point percentage was was quite a bit lower right oh yeah oh yeah yeah because he wasn't finishing around the rim like he is now yeah 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 he really struggled around the rim um and but he went with confidence which was great to see yeah you know you compare him to let's see who do we want to compare let's compare him with neat clifford last year uh he played fewer than half the minutes uh put up two thirds of the shots and shot slightly better percentage from three. So like, you know, he, I love, I love Julian Hammond for, for two reasons. Number one, uh, because he can shoot. And number two, because he just looked like a guy who played quarterback. He is the classic high school quarterback who also plays backup point guard on the varsity team. And just with all this stuff of like getting deflections knows how to run pick and roll exceptionally well like all all these little things that you're watching the game and you're like i don't know he's kind of a minus athlete in a way like he he doesn't have super quick feet on defense at least as a freshman um but how is he deflecting like one out of every five passes that his man tries to make how is this happening because you can just see his iq is off the charts uh, and so I, I, I truly, truly, truly love that you picked Julian Hammond as number four here. Uh, I also would say, you know, again, defensively, I'm worried about him and Simpson starting together or pl- in lineups together. Uh, but, you know, it, it is what it is. Like, you, you need guards and you need to score points. <laughs> you know, just to put it flatly, like, you know, we can talk about defense and rebounding all you want, but a former coach told me, like, well, what do you do on the other end? Uh, and this team, this program is 
a defense first program, but you need guys who can make shots. Uh, and Julian Hammond can absolutely do that. So I, I think that's an awesome pick. I felt good about my rankings of the first four guys. And then I really struggled from here. I'm curious to see who you're going to pick here. Yeah. So I am, you know, I've got a hustle guy in Neek and I've got the energizer Bunner, bunny and KJ. The question for me here is, do I go with someone who's a little bit more steady Eddie? Uh, or I do I go with somebody who has some up and downs, but I think has a chance to pop this year, and, and that's the direction I'm going to go. I'm going to select Luke O'Brien uh, with my next pick here. Luke, you know, look, nobody is a bigger Luke O'Brien fan than Tyler Ziskin, uh, so shout out uh, Big Z. But he just he does so many things that help you win basketball games, and I know that's such a cliche thing to say, but if he can become more consistent with rebounding the ball and shoot with confidence, and I, I don't mean that in terms of form. I mean that in terms of taking the open shots that he gets because he has, he had a tendency last year to drive into trouble when he has a wide-open jump shot from three. Uh, if he can take those shots with confidence, man, uh, he could be a really valuable player. and. He had flash. He had moments last year of real defensive excellence. Now there were teams where he didn't match up particularly well. Uh, I think about against Oregon, he was guarding uh, Young a lot, and Young was a tough matchup for him. But he he's deceptively quick. Uh, he's actually pretty long. He's strong as hell. Like you know, not a lot of guys made the jump physically that he made from his freshman to sophomore year. So I just think that I, I need somebody that uh, is maybe less flash, but can catch and shoot the ball. Uh, if I, you know, if I don't get Julian, then I need a knockdown shooter. I think Luke O'Brien can be that while also providing a body inside. What I like about Luke is that you never have to question whether or not that kid cares. Mm. It shows in the way he plays the game of basketball. And sometimes I, I felt like as an underclassman, maybe it got him in trouble at times. Because he really is almost trying to process too much at times to make always a smart decision. And I think that hurt him his first year because we, we've known how good a shooter he is from high school. But it was like he couldn't slow down. His shot was almost sped up. It was like he couldn't slow down ever on the court. You started to see that a little bit last year. And you'd assume now that he's going into his junior year, that, that'll continue that progression. Uh, but I, I love that kid's game. I had him a little bit lower on my board, so that opens up me to take uh, my guy. And that's thought about it. I'm going to go Ethan Wright. Oh, okay. Here we go. Yeah. Aside from that open scrimmage, this kid has been knocking them down in practice. I know Luke O'Brien had the best shooting percentage. They, they've got the technology in their balls now where they can track uh, shot tracker technology, I think is what it's called. And so they know yeah. how, how well these guys are shooting one. But let, let's be honest, there's a big difference between making shots in an empty gym and then when you're you're running five on five. And uh, again, aside from that open scrimmage, which was ugly, uh, Ethan Wright is going to be a really, really good shooter for this team and such a heady basketball player, knows where to be on the court. Now, certainly his athleticism is going to have its limitations and maybe there's some matchups where you don't want him on the floor late in the game, but generally 
mentioned glue guy with Jalen Gabadon. I think Ethan Wright's going to be that as well, just from an intelligence standpoint. So I like what he's going to bring to this team for one year. If there was no difference between shooting in practice and shooting games, Dustin Thomas would have been an All-American. Yes. Yeah. Watching that guy do shooting drills in practice was awe-inspiring. I mean, absolute knockdown shooter. And in games, he wouldn't hit the rim. I mean, just a complete mess. So, okay, I, I see. I like the roster construction. You've got a lot of shooting on the outside here. And and Tristan, too. We, we didn't even talk about Tristan's three-point shooting ability. You know, he was a 37%. Yeah, 37% three-point shooter last year. Um, all right, so this shakes things up for me because I actually had Ethan 9 okay. on my board. Um, so I've got, I've got a threesome here that I really need to choose between. Let's see here. All right. I'm going to got a lot of defense, man. All right. I, I'm going to go with, uh, I, I, I think that ultimately, man, it, it just feels like I've got some kind of repeating pieces here. Uh, but you know, versatility is important. Uh, versatility is really important. And I'm looking at this as if I've got a lot of cross functionality here. I've got Luke who can step outside as well as guard inside. I've got Nick who can do a little bit of both. And I've got my point guard. I kind of need, I need another, I don't know what I need another guy, but I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to stick with it. Um, I'm also going to be honest and say that I think my expectations for him are more of a guess than with anybody else. I saw him in person a couple times. Uh, I did before he came to see you. His outside shot might struggle at times. That part has not looked good in the preseason, but everything else has been there. Yeah, he's, he's kind of a guy who... How do I put this? Like, if he catches the ball on the wing and his defender is cheating at all, and it, it's kind of like the Eli Parquet situation. How many times did Eli have the ball on the wing late in the shot clock? You know, you kind of got the ball in an awkward position and he would just one dribble and hoist, and it was like maybe not the shot that you wanted. Sometimes you need somebody to put the ball on the floor twice and just try to make something out of nothing. And I think that he can do that a little bit. So I'm not. I we talked about this earlier. This was the this is the point of the lineup where you could go a lot of different directions. But that's where I'm going. It was funny during CU's media day event. Gabadon and Ethan Wright both came out to do interviews at the same time. So half the media contingency there went to one, half went to the other, and typically those settings are going to last max eight minutes it was bordering on a half an hour that each of those guys was talking i mean it just everybody kind of wants to pick the brain of an ivy league graduate and it was just funny how insightful because i went back and listened to to what jalen said and how insightful both those kids are it makes you feel really dumb <laughs> when oh, you yeah. those kids talk oh yeah all right so back to me and I think I, I have a feeling where you're going to go here because you've talked about him a couple of times this preseason. Are you going with Hadley? I'm torn between 
I can make your group really small if I take my brain here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, do I want to take where my heart is or should I? You know what? I, I will do that. I'm going to take Javon Hadley. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Energizer Bunny. That That is Javon Hadley. And uh, maybe I'll tease. We're going to talk about who we think is going to be the starting, in the starting lineup. I would not be shocked if Tad Boyle starts Javon Hadley for that simple reason alone. The fact that you're need, you need rebounding on this year's team. And Tad mentioned that when Javon Hadley missed a practice, the energy in practice just felt different. That's, that's how big of a difference he can make on the court. The problem is he's not going to score a whole lot of points. He'll, he'll get you a lot of you know rebounds, and he'll get you those hustle putbacks. But you're never going to really run your offense through Javon Hadley. Uh, so he's not going to be a bucket getter for the Buffs, but he's going to become a fan favorite, I think, pretty quickly in Boulder. Again, hats off to, to Mike Rome because uh, usually you have a guy signed, you would think you, you, you stop recruiting these other guys, and Rome was still keeping in contact with Hadley despite that. And uh, th- that's as good a late get as they could have gotten in the process. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned about not being able to score. And I think that is always the tough thing about this program is that at Colorado, your seventh, sixth, seventh, eighth guy is rarely going to be somebody that can really go out and get buckets. Uh, and, you know, places like Arizona, UCLA, USC, like they, they will be, they are able to recruit depth. You know, they're, they're signing four top 100 guys a year. And so like eventually that filters down and you have a lot of talent on your bench, whether it all comes together is a different story. Colorado's had plenty of success, but it's just like when you look at kind of role allocation and lineups, uh, there's always a lineup or two that Pat will roll out where you're just wanting to pull your hair out because you're asking who is going to score the ball. Yeah. Um, one, one of my favorite parts about Ken Palm is that they actually track the most frequent lineup. Uh, that a team has recently used. Uh, and down the stretch, over 40% of the time, they're the most common lineups. The only quote-unquote non-scorer would either have been Julian Hammond or Luke O'Brien. They, every other, there were always other, other than that, for the majority of time, uh, they were, with Keyshawn, who would go out and try to score, KJ would try to score, Jabari would score, Evan who would score, or Tristan who would score. So it does feel like Tad has improved in that way in recent years. He's also just had more weapons to use in that regard. Uh, but, you know, like if you've got a lineup with KJ, Tristan, uh, let's say either Neek or Julian and Lawson on the floor, you know, it's a little bit different because you've got a seven-footer out there, but, like, I don't know that you need your power forward shooting in that lineup, you know? So, in, in, in that respect, um, I love that what he brings to the table in that way and the role that he can play. To me, that just means that the Buffs are going to need Meek and Luke O'Brien to step up their offensive production. For him to be viable... Not not saying that you know he won't play if they don't. I'm just saying like for this team to be viable, uh, if he is going to be a contributor, 
then they're going to need Neek and Luke to be productive offensive players. Which is where, for me, I look at Lawson, who I'm picking next, as somebody who, you know, look, uh, for all of the issues that he has with strength and physicality, uh, being seven feet is a skill at, at the college level. Um, you know, there, there are some guys in this league who have just been seven feet and have been effective in their roles simply because of that. Um, now I think the, the difference is like, if he can, if he can pass, if he can do anything to adjust shots at the rim defensively, then you're not quite as worried about his scoring package. Uh, but he's got to be able to give you something on the offensive boards. He's got to be able to give you something when he receives dump offs from p- guards who are penetrating. Um, I really hope we don't see a lot of back to the basket, him backing guys down, needing to make a move. I, I just, that's not what I want to see out of the Colorado offense. Uh, well, as Ted really says, no, no one looks for him offensively anyway. So you're probably not going to get a whole yeah. lot of that. <laughs> You know, and I think ultimately, like that, that's healthy. Like, if, if you're a guy who can have the right mentality and say, I'm going to go get mine regardless, I'm going to find a way to get, find the ball, then you're going to seek it out on the offensive boards. You're going to step into open spaces when a guard penetrates and defenses shift. Like, you're going to find a way to the ball um, if that's what you really, really want. Uh, and I think that's the biggest thing with him is like, the mental side of the game is crucial. Uh, and I think that more than anything, probably, you know, we, there are plenty of guys who aren't Jack who compete physically in college basketball. It's a mentality. It really is. So he's got to have that mentality, that confidence that every time he steps on the court, he's going out there to compete physically. Yeah. He's never going to be a thick guy, but he does. You can tell that he has put on a enough mass this year and he looks so much more comfortable on the defensive end of the court he's still missing a lot of those bunnies that kind of gets his game to spiral sometimes because he cares so much and he gets so angry when he misses a layup and that's something they're working on with him but the way he moves around the court and just you can tell he's so much more comfortable in his skin out there now than, than he was a year ago and I know Lawson loved Evan Batty as a person, but he's so happy that he doesn't have to go against Evan every day in practice because that was such a weird matchup for him. And not a guy that Lawson was going to face a whole lot in college basketball as a big man, as a seven foot one guy, right? So uh, Joe Hurlbert is very much still figuring things out, but he's got a little bit more of a similar body type that he can go against in practice every day. And, and maybe that plays a little bit into him looking more comfortable out there. The question is, can he stay on the court? Because they need him to stay out of foul trouble. But Tad has mentioned, you know, even their most talented bigs that have come through have all struggled with that as underclassmen. And so that's going to be a real challenge for him this year. Uh, you've got to be aggressive and not foul. And, and that's really hard for big men earlier in their career to figure out. So he's going to miss some some bunnies. He's going to have foul is- fouling issues at times. But if you looked at Lawson Lovering, as a three-star that came into the program, what you get out of him this year, I think you'd be super excited. I think a lot of the issue there is just the high expectations that he came in with that were probably not fair to him. It's not like he asked to be the second highest rated signee 
in modern CU basketball history. And, and maybe that's a weight that has furthered him to get frustrated when may, maybe he would just play through it a little bit more naturally at this young stage of his career. But I hope people have that proper perspective with him and, and don't keep looking at him as this guy that was supposed to be, you know, a can't miss type of guy coming in because it is a developmental process for him. And by the time he's done at CU, he's going to be a really, really good, one of the best centers in the Pac-12. Yeah, and the last thing that I would add is like, for anybody on the message board or Twitter who thinks that a back, an efficient and dominant back-to-the-basket scoring lovering is, you know, us not having that is what's keeping Colorado from being an elite team. Like, you're wrong. Like, that's just not how college basketball works. It's not how basketball works. Like, you... KJ Simpson and Julian Hammond are more important to this team's prospects and the results that we see from them this year than Lawson Lovering's ability to dunk on people's heads and back people down and hit shots over his shoulder. Like it's just that you can pine for Dikembe Matumbo all you want, but ultimately what they actually need from Lawson is yeah, to find some finishing ability off the catch and on rebounds. Uh, to alter shots of the rim defensively and to rebound the ball. That's what they need from him. Uh, and, and stay out of, and largely stay out of foul trouble. Uh, you know, D- Dallas Walton is kind of the opposite, right? He was pretty advanced offensively. Uh, obviously his shot and like he, he could score points. Defensively, he left a lot to be desired for a lot of his career. Now, he played in the starting unit for a lot of his career because he was seven feet tall. What you really, what, if, if you're telling me that you want Dallas Walton over a six, nine to six eleven guy that can alter some shots and grab rebounds, then I mean, all right, I'll beat your team more often than not. Cause that's just how basketball works. Now this is not 1995 anymore. All right. Back to me. And I'm going to go with Quincy Allen here. Maybe people will be surprised that he fell this far. And he does have, he's got a ton of potential and he's going to be part of the rotation and it's going to be up and down with his game this year. There are going to be a handful of moments that you jump out of your seat and and those are going to be fun this upcoming season. This makes my team pretty small. So I'm going to have to put De Silva at the five here. Um, unless I get Hurlburt late, but, um, what, what do you think about De Silva having a place in five this year? Obviously, it's going to depend matchup to matchup, but I like it. I, I really do. Um, like Tristan was deceptively good in post defense last year, I thought. Um, and I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm, you know, I, I really could be forgetting somebody right now in the league. But when I think about the top teams in the league, I think about guards. I think about wings. I don't think about big men. Um, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting the guy's name at Oregon, who's seven foot, you know, nine or whatever he is. But like him trying to guard Tristan De Silva coming off of down screens and curling to the elbow. Yes, please. I would love that. That would make me very happy. Uh, Tristan's a nightmare for most opposing big men. In a different way, his brother was so physically imposing and and long. And more explosive than Tristan is. But Tristan, he's comfortable in the perimeter. He's comfortable spotting, shooting, coming off of threes, or screens, catching and shooting. Um, 
And I think he would be a nightmare for the opposition. Uh, you know, guys like I think about O'Brien, um, maybe even Hadley, like could slide into that power forward role because the power forward role is really just a wing. Down, you know, like this isn't Tim Duncan and David Robinson. Like we're, you know, we're talking about so they're probably guarding somebody who's like six seven. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not that worried about him at the five. I, I think I would love to see that uh, pretty often, actually. So it's back to you, and you get to pick between Joe Hurlbert and Javon Ruffin. Yeah, I'm I'm going to leave you some size here, uh, okay. and I'm going to go with Javon Ruffin. Um, for what it's worth, I had Ethan Wright 9 and Quincy Allen 10, uh, largely for the same reason as you. Um, I, didn't, I didn't say anything about Quincy, but I'll, I'll just chime in briefly and say that Thad talks about he needs everyday guys. The writing is on the wall that Thad has been very open with what he needs to see from Quincy Allen to get on the court. And we can pine all we want about high school rankings and athleticism, but like uh, at some point, like how many times in, in Tad's career have guys not played that should really be playing more? I mean, I, I, I'm I'm trying to think through it. And, you know, I think about Treshawn Fletcher, uh, who clearly had a skill set that he could put on display that the role that he was going to play at Colorado just wasn't going to allow him to, to do it. And maybe if he had been put in more of a volume, he could have displayed that. But he also struggled with injuries in Boulder. So, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think. I don't know. Is there is there anybody that jumped out to you where it's like, oh my god, like how is this guy not getting? Support? No, yeah. I mean, you can. People have obviously complained a lot about some of the different lineups that he's put out there, but there really hasn't been a whole lot of negative chatter about why is this guy not playing more. Yeah, right. That's a good if point. If anything, if, if anything, it's like why is this guy playing so much? Yeah. Right. Like you know, Tristan, until his freshman year, we were all like, what is happening here? Like, what are what is anybody watching? Uh, and so. If Quincy Allen is not in heavy rotation, like I think Tad's are in the benefit of the doubt on that regard. So just keep that in mind, uh, everybody at home. I, I'm going Javon Ruffin here. You know, I, I know that Tad's comments about his injuries were kind of interesting. Did did you pick up on a little like, hey, you gotta toughen it up a little bit from him? A hundred percent. Because <laughs> yeah. He was asked by Pat Rooney a question about Javon, and he answered it by talking about how he's not dependable because he's not on the court. And then Pat clearly wanted a different quote for that story. So we asked him another question, and Tad went right back to that. So Tad is a master of building guys up through the media, but also sending a message through the media. And it was pretty clear that was part of it. And he came in with a knee injury, a legit knee injury. And there's a reason that he registered last year. I took that to mean that he would have liked to see Javon practice a little bit earlier than he did last year and a little bit more while the season was still going on. And then he legitimately did hurt his ankle in the scrimmage. Every, you know, there was hundreds of fans in there that saw that. But when he came back to practice, maybe just that favoring of it and not having that warrior mentality that I'm not going to let this affect my play on the court is what's kind of rubbing boil the wrong way with him right now. 
But then he did he did talk about his skill set is there. That's not something that they question. He is a you know a guy that can handle the ball, play off ball. He's a pretty decent shooter. He does a lot of things really well. But it was clear that Tad is frustrated at this point that he's you know not maybe playing through some things that some other guys might. Yeah, and there you know there are kind of two views on that. Like in one regard, like this isn't 1995 anymore, coach. Like. You know, you, you do need guys to take care of themselves. And there is something to be said that, like, oh, the whole cliche of, you know, injuries versus, you know, what is it? Like being hurt versus being, being hurt, injured. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and like, okay. But as somebody who had ankle issues derail his career, I can confidently say, like, ankles are a pain. And when you do not have sp- strength or confidence in your ankle like you're not super useful out there um so that you know i i would i would say that but also you know i viewed javon ruffin as this very poor man tyler campbell i and a, and a bigger version of tyler campbell like a maybe not the most explosive guard but like somebody who's just kind of shifty or crafty um who's a little bit bulldoggy in a way and you know, I say this, and then I compare that to Tad's comments. To be successful in that role as a ball handler guard where, yeah, like you have to be craftier and tougher than the person in front of you because maybe you're not like this explosive, uh, lightning quick guy. If you don't have that mentality, then you can't be, you, you won't find consistent success in that role. And as that kind of player. So that's where I, I look at Tad's comments. And I say, okay, for what I want and think Javon can be, if he's not mentally capable of it, then that's a problem. Uh, but also, you know, I think it's also worth saying, like, this is number 11 on my list. You know, this is a guy who is clearly capable, skill-wise, of contributing and making an impact at this level. And he's number 11 out of... 13 scholarship guys on our ranking like that's a good problem you know that's a non-fatal problem to have at that spot yeah and before he turned his ankle in that scrimmage he was arguably the best player on the court super small small sample size that's 10 minutes of of a scrimmage and guys are going to have ups and downs but i think seeing that just illustrates the depth on this team that the number 11 guy on this list is a really good basketball player that would have played a lot of minutes on some of Tad Boyle's teams in the past. And because you've got KJ and you've got Julian Hammond and you brought in Ethan Wright, it's going to be hard for Javon Ruffin to log a lot of minutes this year and get in the rotation, but he does. He, he's a really talented player. So that gives me uh, Joel Hurlbert at the end here, who has got some nice touch around the rim. Uh, he's a, He's a good stretch player he can shoot from behind the arc he's just so far behind figuring things out on the defensive end of the court coming from north dakota at this point he's going to play some minutes this year i mentioned you know foul issue foul issues are going to be there at times for loss and lovering you can put De Silva at five and play him some there but well there's not a whole lot of options beyond that in terms of playing that five position for this team yeah um I'm going to ask you a question before I go too much deeper. 
Can you offer any comparison kind of between where he's at now and someone like Lucas Seward when he was a freshman? I would say that where Lucas was as a freshman compared to where Joe Hurlbert is right now, that Lucas Seward was more ready to play at this level, but that with Joe Hurlbert, you actually see a higher ceiling down the road, but it's probably not going to be there this year. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I remember thinking, you know, to myself with Lucas his freshman year that like I I was worried. You know, I, I saw somebody who wasn't physical, who wasn't uh who was a negative on defense, who really like he could shoot the shit up pardon me, he could shoot the ball really well. Um but I didn't know really what else he gave you. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at his uh, game run from his freshman year. I mean, he, he played more than 12 minutes for a big part of the year, um, particularly early in the year and then very, very late in the year. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm just kind of thinking about trajectory of career. You think about big guy who's got some shooting touch capability. Um, you know, if I'm looking at Joe Herbert this year, yeah, he's um, you know, he's your third big man, right? Uh, if I'm looking at him down the line, I'm looking at tools, right? I'm looking at a guy who can pick and pop. If he can do that, then great. That's all you like. That's all you really need, and like ideally, contest shots when somebody's posting up on you or driving to the rim. Like, you don't need to be a major shot blocker. Uh, we just, other than really Jabari, we haven't had anybody at the rim since Tyler Bay. And Colorado doesn't need Tyler Bay. They just need somebody that people have to shoot over. That is all. Uh, and so, you know, what What would my expectation for him be this year? It would be pretty small. Like, a- anything that you get positively from him this year uh, is something that you have to be really happy with. And even R.J. Smith, who's not part of this draft, has been practicing lately. And, and again, it's clear that he is not a guy that doesn't belong at this level, that with some development, is going to be kind of along the lines of a Julian Hammond. Not a flashy guy athletically, but um, is a smart basketball player. And so, uh, I would assume that he's going to redshirt. We're talking about it being hard for Javon Ruffin to find minutes right now. I don't think there's any reason why RJ Smith would be playing minutes this year. Can you? No, no, that should be a redshirt. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I'm I'm looking at these lineups here, and it's pretty interesting. I got to say, because we have KJ and Julian at our point guard spots. We've got Neek and Ethan Wright, like at our off guard. We've got on the wing, Luke O'Brien slash Gavinon versus Quincy Allen and Javon Hadley. And then we've got Tristan Da Silva versus Lawson Lovering underneath. 
basically. Yep. It would be a good game. I tune. I think I think it would too. I, I think it would be I think it would be really competitive. I really do. Man, that's a that's a lot of six six guys on on the on the wing. Just like a lot of kind of like standstill six guys. Uh yeah, I mean I all right, now that we've gone through it, I mean who would you pick to win? You're picking your group, you riding with your guys? If I'm setting the line for this, I'm going to have a close, but I'm going to go, Will, your team minus a point and a half is going to be and what point the, spread. Is there, is, is there a position that makes you lean towards that? I'll, I do like KJ Simpson's competitiveness, bordering on cockiness <laughs> as a leader of your team. Whereas, you know, my leader is going to be a little bit more quiet in those huddles. You know, I, I right. think K, I think KJ Simpson's competitive fire is what I like about your team, comparing it to mine. I think Tristan is absolutely cooking me. Like, I think Tristan is getting buckets. Okay. That's my team. Like, I'm, I, that terrifies me. <laughs> All right, let's get into some predictions. We've gone for uh, over an hour and a half now, so we won't take too much time here. But we talked about the non-conference slate. What is that? Eleven games. Uh, non-conference is going to be eleven. There, there are nine on the schedule right now with the two additional games. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's your record prediction for non-conference? I've got them at eight and three. Um, I think that Tennessee is a loss. I think they'll lose one in. I, I would imagine they lose one in Myrtle Beach. Uh, and then, I mean, I'm sorry to say, but uh, I think Colorado, Colorado State is going to be a scrappy team. They lose the matchup nightmare uh, in in Roddy, but that program has a lot of athleticism in it right now. And They've got one of the best point guards in America. And when you think back on historical CSU-CU matchups, there have been a few where Tad goes, uh, we don't have a single guard that would start for them. And I'm not saying that that's the case this year, but I think uh, as much as I love KJ early in the season, when everybody's trying to figure out where they fit, Colorado State has the most important position and leadership down. So uh, I'm probably going to go with them, even though it's in Boulder. I, I bet that atmosphere is going to be ridiculous, by the way. I have to imagine that's going to be a really fun game. Uh, if, if not, you know, maybe they lose two uh, in Myrtle Beach, and it's a nightmare, but then they recover in that stretch that I talked about earlier. So I'll go eight and three. I was torn between seven and four and eight and three for non-conference, and I was also torn between 11 and nine and 10 and 10 for conference play. So with based off Boyle's comments about it might be a little bit of a struggle early on, but we're going to be salty later on. I'll go with the pessimistic view early and the more optimistic view on the back end of that with conference play. So I'm going to go, they go seven and four non-conference and then 11 and nine in conference play. I, I do think it's going to fall in that 17 to 19 win range in terms of the regular season. And then you go out to Vegas and see if you can get a couple more wins out there. But 
that's that's kind of how I see things. How do you see things with conference play and then equally in your your total regular season prediction? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think the the you know they finish with three of you know three and three home and away to finish their conference slate, but it's at Utah, at Arizona State, at Arizona, USC at home, UCLA at home, Utah at home. That's a pretty brutal six game finisher. Um, and, you know, Boyle's talking a lot about how he expects this team to be rounding in the form around this time of year. You know, it, I would love for this guy to be flipped. You know, have that run at the beginning when you're still trying to figure things out. Uh, and so, you know, for that reason, I'm going 9 and 10 in conference. Um, you know, I, I think that's going to be a really difficult finish. Now, that also gives you an opportunity to find out, you know, if this team is kind of what they're made of as, as they're coming together and gelling, because they've got a chance to knock off some really good teams to close the year at home. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm leaning nine and 11. I wish I wasn't. Uh, I think the middle of the pack is all going to be uh, 11 and nine to nine and 11. I think there's going to be a lot of tiebreak at stake. To finish to figure out the standings, so that puts you at uh, seventeen wins for the regular yeah. season, correct? Okay. Yeah, it feels you know I, I was leaning I was originally going to go with nineteen, uh, but I hadn't remembered to check the schedule, and I, that's just a tough way to end things. All right, so let's predict the starting lineup. I don't think there's uh, any debate in terms of Tristan De Silva, KJ Simpson, Lawson, Lovering. Probably, do you have any? I mean, that's pretty much in pen at this point, right? I believe so. I would even put Nick Clifford probably in pen as well at this point. I have him in my starting lineup prediction, you know. So that opens up that other spot. And and that's it's really tough. And, and I think this is going to possibly be a situation where it's matchup dependent. We haven't yeah. seen that. We've seen that a little bit under Boyle, right? Where he he has been willing to shake up starting lineups throughout a season. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, a lot of times it's people emerging, right? Uh, Neek working his way into the starting lineup last year, right? Stuff like that. Um, you know, I I wonder if there is a little bit of what they did with. Oh, I, I talked about him earlier. Now I'm forgetting his name. Dallas Walton. I wonder if there's a little bit of Dallas Walton where it's like, uh, whether that's Lawson or someone like Javon, where they start, uh, they come out at the first real substitution, and then they only log like 18 minutes that game. Uh, I wonder how much we'll see that. Uh, because if, if they did that with Javon, then they could start him and uh, bring Julian in in the first sub and run a two-guard lineup, something like that. Um, or if they decided to do that with Lawson, then you know th- there's a lot of different options that you do with that. Uh, but I, I would, I think opening night, I'm predicting we'll see Julian Hammond starting with those four. Yep, that's my prediction as well. And I was torn; it was going to be Hammond or Javon Hadley there. Jalen Gabadon wouldn't shock me, but again, I, I value what he does well with the second unit and having him part of that. Ethan Wright, if he shoots the way he has in practice this preseason, aside from that open scrimmage, 
it's going to be hard to keep him off out of the starting lineup, but uh, he's going to have to earn it by being a knockdown shooter, being a Levi Knutson type shooter. And I mean, that's something that he, he's not going to get an opportunity to start proving until November 7th. So I don't think yeah. that's something that he was going to be able to win in the preseason necessarily, but uh, it would it wouldn't shock me if any of those guys are starting at points this season. Yeah, I, I'm along with you as well. You know, the question with Ethan will be: uh, Can he handle? Does he have any ball handling ability versus live competition? And can he defend at this level consistently? Like, if he can do those things, uh, then you know, I, I don't mind bringing Julian off the bench. He proved that he can be impactful off the bench last year, and if he's better this year, then I expect that to be the same. Um, you know, Tad doesn't mind switching up the starting lineups. He's also the most important thing with Tad is closing lineups, closing the half and closing the game, like with anybody, really. But uh, the, where where guys kind of find themselves in those roles will be really fascinating to watch about. In terms of the team's MVP, there's probably two real candidates here, and will I think. The best thing for this basketball team would be if KJ Simpson's your MVP. Mm. Mm. I think it, right. for the for the overall team success. Now, if they don't live up to their expectations, I think De Silva will probably be their most valuable player. What do you think? It's so funny that you said. I I almost think the opposite. I think really okay. If if this team really plays up to their ceiling, it's because Tristan took a step. Uh, to becoming this really assertive scorer, defender, et cetera, um, rebounder. You know, I think that KJ can give you 11 and 6, 12 and 6, you know, and, and a rebound here and there. And the season could go a lot of different ways because we know there's going to be up and down. And I think maybe that's what you're alluding to with regarding to MVP, that he found a level of consistency. Uh, you know, for for me, it's Tristan De Silva becoming a true first team All Conference guy uh, and being, you know, one of the better six guys in the league. Uh, that would be big time. Now he could also win it just by default. They kind of underachieved. Yeah, uh, that's more of what I was. I, I feel like there there are certainly aspects of De Silva's games that they can get better in terms of you mentioned the rebounding and his assertiveness. I'm not worried about Tristan De Silva and I'm not worried about KJ Simpson, but I'm a little bit more worried about him. If that makes sense yeah. in the sense that, you know, what's the level of it? Is he going to, how erratic is he going to be game to game? And I don't, I, I really don't have a prediction on that at this point because of, you know, his game and, and where it is at this point. Yeah, that's really fair. That's really fair. Who's going to be the most improved player on the team. Uh, I'm I'm torn between two guys. Uh, I'm torn between Julian Hammond and Lawson Lovering uh, because I think I, I think Julian was really good as a freshman in the role that he was in. Uh, honestly, I thought he performed really admirably last year. I mean, he started uh, for for quite a few games down the stretch, or at least a couple. Um, so if, if he's a bona fide difference maker on this team, then that's a that's a big jump. Um, similarly, you know, it's, it's funny, the bar is almost lower for Lawson. Uh, Lawson has to be a contributor, and he would probably be in the running for most improved. 
Um, so I guess it's like, you know, is somebody that much better or are they tactful, you know, however you look at this. Uh, but I'll go with Lawson because I was not as negative on, I know everybody kind of recognizes that he started to play better before he got injured. But like he really started to play better. Like there, there were signs of real life there uh, before he got injured. And that speaks to really how poorly his career started. I mean, it was uh, pretty ugly to watch for a while. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that that's damning of him uh, as a, as a career, but it is what it is. So I think him being a player that can contribute and be on the floor uh, and not get run off the floor by every other lineup would probably qualify him for this award. Yeah. I had Lovering, and then I was also considering for a second, Nick Clifford. I think he loves the rebounding opportunities that he's going to get this year uh, more so than in the past. And we've seen him really step up in that regard. We've, we've seen a pretty uh, steady progression with his game since he's been on campus and being able to take it up and a step higher than he was last year uh, is, is needed for this basketball team. But I think that's going to be noticeable. I think you're going to go to a game and you, if you don't know the roster, you're going to ask somebody who's that kid. Cause he's really standing out. And I don't necessarily know if you would have done that a ton during his first two, two years on campus. I, you know, I was, I remember talking about this last year, but it felt like once a game he would grab a rebound and go and something magical would happen. He would make an incredible open court pass, or he would get the ball on the break, deliver a highlight dunk, whatever it was. Like there was once a game where when he would grab and go, that was a level of uh, excitement that the team didn't re- didn't maybe always have. And you know we didn't talk about this earlier, but I think this team really needs to play at a pace that we haven't seen in Boulder in a while. You know the Buffs have been pretty average pace tempo wise nationally for a while this team has the pieces to play really fast and i think a big part of that is neek having the confidence and the freedom from the staff to grab and go let's close here william i want to get your favorite memories with cu basketball we talked about you enjoying the behind the scenes stuff covering the team and, and especially going out there on the recruiting trail is there anything else any games that really stand out when you think back to your time, uh, you know, either being a fan or actually covering the team. Yeah. Um, the the first would be the NCAA tournament game against UNLV um, down in Albuquerque. That was, you know, it's my first game as a credentialed reporter at the NCAA tournament. I'm, you know, Andy Katz is over here. This ESPN person is over here. It's, uh, the the pageantry is really unmatched for anything that I had experienced uh, in my journalism career, and that atmosphere, you know, we we talk a lot about that atmosphere. But if you weren't there, I I rewatched the game on TV. I know it came through the TV. I promise you, the degrees to which it was more intense in the building. Uh, Colorado basketball fans, uh, if you, you know. One of the great performances at a neutral venue that I can remember. It was it was fantastic, and you and all the fans too. Um, so I think about that game. I think about 
Spencer's junior year, Oregon at home, I think it was like 100 to 91 or something absolutely insane. And it was just the level of skill and talent on the floor for both teams was absurd. Uh, but in, in recent times, I I go back to Colorado Dayton at the United Center in Chicago. I'm there with six other people, not working the game, just watching, uh, sitting in the Dayton section. I mean, the whole the whole arena was the Dayton section. Uh, and certainly, you know, like Deshaun's shot was epic. Stepped into it with the confidence uh, of somebody who had been there before and just rocked it. Uh, the pass from Tyler Bay, the weird decision of McKinley to put Tyler Bay in the decision in the position to have to make the pass. You know, all of it was incredible. But it was—I um, had never seen a Colorado player do what McKinley Wright did that night. The mentality that he had, uh, and then after the game, you know, the whole Dayton. Uh, he was just getting heckled through the whole game, right? The whole every time he touched the ball. For, for 40 minutes, anytime he touched the ball, uh, and plus overtime. And then after the game, he comes out of the handshake lines, he gets interviewed, uh, and before he goes back to the locker room, he's standing in front of the scorer's table, looking out of the crowd, and, and people are shouting, throwing stuff, the whole deal. Uh, and he just puts his hands across the collar on the front like he's Superman. <laughs> and just starts shouting. And I am 10 rows up. I lose my mind. I just started give it to them. They deserve it. Let's go. And I have, you know, old people, young people, dating married people just glaring at people. And it was <laughs> and I think that, you know, the, the talent on the floor for both teams was incredible. You know, Obi Toppin was amazing that game for Dayton just uh that was uh, I think that and the Oregon game were probably the two most high level basketball games. That I saw played uh, in Boyle's tenure. When I think back, I think all the way back to when I first started covering CU basketball, and it was late during the Ricardo Patton era. And it was a, a depressing place to be, the CU Event Center, the Coors Event Center back then. It was very, very rare. At most, once or twice a year, you'd get a decent crowd in there. And there was just not, it was kind of like going through the motions. It was like everybody in that building was kind of going through the motions. There just wasn't a lot of passion around the program. And Jeff Bezdell came in and, and did some good things, especially with the facilities, getting that in his contract, recruiting, you know, some talents there, but it was still not a great atmosphere. And then I think back to Tad Boyle's first year and they're hosting number five, Texas. Mm-hmm. And they're down 22 points with 15 minutes left. And Alec Burks starts making some plays in the open court. And Levi Knutson's knocking down shots. And they storm back. And that was the first time covering a CU basketball game that I was like, this is a special environment. Like, truly special environment. Fans rush the court. I mean, that was a Texas team that had uh, Tristan Thompson on it. Uh Jordan Hamilton. Hamilton. Jordan Hamilton, yeah. Uh, Corey Joseph. I mean, that's three guys that I think were first-round draft picks, and you're down 22 points. And, and that, to me, kind of felt like the start of uh, mm. Boyle really turning the CU Event Center into an awesome place. And so and it's funny, in all my time 
on the beat here. I've only gone to one game as a fan. And it happened last year. My kids got into the CU basketball team the way they never were able to with the football team. I think it's more inviting environment for a, a young person. It's a little easier to figure out. And they, they fell in love like with Evan Batty, like everybody did, got to meet him. And so my daughter asked me if I would go to one game as a fan with them. And I was like, you know, I got to pick out the perfect game to do that with. And uh, Jake Shapiro was covering me that night. So it, going to Evan Batty's senior night and putting on a CU shirt, which obviously I'll never do covering the team, but going there with my daughter and uh, that, that was pretty awesome. And everybody knows they, of course, beat Arizona and uh, all the students rushed the court. And I mean, it was, it was a cool that I don't know if I'll ever go to a CU game as a fan again. And I hadn't before that. I picked a pretty good one. Yeah, I think you picked the greatest one that you could possibly pick, you know, not, and again, it's like, there have been, you know, I, I don't mean to just completely rail on the football program. Like there have been some guys to come to that program that are special people. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll be honest, it doesn't feel like that compared to the basketball program. Uh, so for me, at least like when I think of, people in the community that the community latched onto. And I don't like, you know, maybe that's just winning versus losing. Maybe that's what it is. But I think of the, the impact that people like McKinley, uh, even Spencer in a short time there, I think about people like Evan and like, they are going to be talked about like McCartney people football era football players got talked about in Boulder. Yeah. Uh, and that's a special thing. It is unfortunate though. There, there is this very hardcore CU basketball fan base on Twitter and on our message board that love them more than anything. I just wish there were more of those people because it's hard to get a lot of CU basketball discussion going and, yeah. you know, this podcast isn't going to get downloaded as much as a podcast after a CU at Arizona football game where they got murdered. Well, I guess that's a bad example because they were going through a coaching change, but maybe an earlier, <laughs> maybe, maybe an earlier game in the season where they got blown out. That, that show is getting downloaded more. Uh, and when some, people say that, you know, CU is a basketball school, I think if it was ever going to be a basketball school, it would have been in the last 15 years and that hasn't happened. So it's never going to happen. I would love for there to be even more interest in the basketball program. It's a great environment. People do support this team when it's a big game, but from just a conversation standpoint, you just don't hear about this program talked about as much. Yeah. I mean, I think, of, you know, not that we need to dwell on it too long, but uh, I mean, think about Ohio state, Michigan, Wisconsin, these are different levels and they've, and they've enjoyed different levels of basketball success than Colorado has, you know, to be sure. I don't want to sound completely crazy here, but, those are football schools. Those will always be football schools. They have incredible atmospheres for basketball. They have incredibly invested fans for basketball. And the Coors Event Center is a special place to watch a basketball game. There, the Event Center, a special place to watch a basketball game. A packed crowd in there. There's something to it. It's old. It's cavernous, and it's loud. And I just think you know, like I get it. Some people just don't like basketball. That's fine. I'm never gonna, you know. And and I get that me included and a lot of people like me for a lot of years uh you know uh, 
I get we rub people the wrong way about the basketball program, and I'm not going to pretend like we didn't. But I guess I would just say that you know, if you're a Colorado fan, if you're a Colorado, you live in Colorado, even uh, the basketball program is is a lot of fun to support, uh, and there's a lot of joy to be in, to be had as a CU basketball fan. You you know, you're going to win more than half your game, uh, which. That doesn't happen in everything, and sometimes you get from, uh, you get to watch something really special grow over the course of multiple years, and you see the payoff. So, jump on board. All right, William, we've gone about two hours here, <laughs> but uh, I, I, that was bound to happen. We haven't caught up in a long time. It's uh, good to see you over Zoom, and I appreciate you uh, taking some time out to do this. Absolutely, thanks for having me on, and. Uh, uh, I'll pop up on um, Buff Stampede a little bit more this year with the with the lack of free ball, and we'll uh, we'll get some hoops talk off. Awesome, sounds good, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. <laughs>